You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Yeah. Turn the microphone on too soon. This is Encyclopedia. Uh, and welcome. It is a Sunday afternoon. It's kind of mild outside today. I like to talk about the weather first because I'm from Melbourne. Uh, it's a bad <laughs> habit. It's a really bad habit. But like, I've just stepped inside into this dark studio. Well, I mean, it's got lights in it, but like, dark in terms of like natural light and um yeah i thought it was quite mild outside i did a bit of gardening this morning uh ash blackwell in the studio with me my name's nick um this is in psychedelia thank you to freedom of species uh who will be back next week from one o'clock but ash how you doing it's been a busy week for you yeah yeah it's been a really good week i got to meet a bunch of crew up at um uh newer the new users and aids association up in new south wales they had their peers and consumers forum this week and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, shortly in the show. Also in the studio uh, with us today is Rita, Rita Bryan. Uh, and Rita is one of the volunteers with Loop Safety Testing Australia. G'day. Hi, guys. Uh, good, good. Hang on. Let's let's point that microphone <laughs> towards you. Yeah, let's say hello again. <laughs> Try that again. Hey, that's better. <laughs> um, and Rita, you're going to talk to us um, shortly about uh, some, well, what's been going on with the loop because uh, if uh, anybody's been following any of these things on social media, you've probably seen uh, that the loop has an event this Thursday. Uh, uh, the Loop is headed up in the UK, so it's a UK-based organisation headed up by Fiona Meesham, who has uh, who was out. Uh, she spoke at Rainbow Serpent Festival. She, she spoke at Entheogenesis Australis in December last year uh, about um, the pill testing they have been doing at festivals in the UK. I'm not sure how many festivals have been done now because they just completed their their summer season, they've, so they've just added a whole bunch. Yeah, on, they've on top done of their the, third summer of front of house testing and hit nearly 20, I think. That's pretty good. Some of which are like almost quarter of a million people attending, so that's massive. Yeah, we don't quite have any... Wait, quarter of a million... Well, hang on, no, maybe no, not. Quarter... Maybe that's more Glastonbury-sized, but um, certainly some are big festivals. Seriously? Is that seriously? Is that's 250,000? That's ridiculous. Pe- How do you think... Whoa. People that's bigger than Ballarat. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, my. I would think it's bigger than Ballarat. Sorry, Ballarat, you might be getting up to the 300k point now, but it's about that size. It's the size of an uh, inland regional <laughs> Victorian city. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that shortly, but uh, we're going to get stuck into some news because uh, we've we've been a bit lax on the news lately. A lot of stuff has happened, uh, and it's hard to cover everything. Again, if you miss anything, uh, do follow us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, you'll find uh, the Encyclopedia Twitter, uh, twitter.com forward slash Encyclopedia, but from there, uh, you'll also also find a number of other Twitter accounts, including um, Ash was tweeting this week from the New South Wales, uh, uh, or from the newer um, peer uh, forum, and we just retweet that kind of stuff. So if you're a Twitter person, you can get on, follow some good people, and get that uh, that information nice and quickly. But we'll get stuck into the news now on Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia news of the week. I don't condone or advocate that everyone should use illicit drugs. I think it's a, a huge decision made with the right amount of research and forethought. The intention is to discourage ICE use. The actual effect is it encourages the stigmatisation of people who use this drug. The risk there is people are less likely to disclose their use, even when they're experiencing some issues, so they're less likely to access essential health services. The potential for harm increases. People feel hesitant to be open about who they are because they're afraid of judgment from 
family members or people at work or, or just people in society in general. Many of them have conservative mindsets regardless of their politics uh, and will just say, oh well, then the, the, the government are not looking after us and therefore it's seen as a law and order issue rather than a, a social problem that needs to be dealt with on, on a public health basis. Drug news from Melbourne and around the world. Nicole Lee, professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University, and Jared Bartle, a lecturer in criminal law at RMIT, have released a new study called uh, a new report titled "What Works in Alcohol and Other Drug Treatment in Prison." <clears throat> There's a write-up of this in on theconversation.com, and. Um, you know, it kind of goes into some of the correlations between drug, illicit drug use and uh, people being incarcerated in prison. Um, 18% of detainees and 32% of uh, people in prison reported illicit drugs directly contributing to their crime. And there's a bit of a breakdown in that between um, kind of being intoxicated or something like that being a factor or crime that's generated through um funding, you know, the the needs of addiction. So, you know, essentially committing theft, for example, to, to fund um, fund drug use. But they also go into um, how do we reduce harms in prison and how does, like, treatment kind of work? They're a little bit critical of the way that some of the rehabilitation programs work in prison where they're um, kind of based on that 12-step model, which out in the broader community only has a success rate of about 8%. Um and they highlight both the need for harm reduction um, services such as needle syringe programs in prison. About 6% of people uh, report using drugs by injection while in prison. And um, those kinds of measures can help reduce bloodborne viruses. And they also talk about the value of peers, which is uh, kind of a bit of a theme for me after the, the newer forum this week. So people that are incarcerated that have got experience of injecting drug use or they've been through the prison system and um, they can kind of visit people within the prison system and help them to navigate, uh, you know, being incarcerated uh, while still being a, a drug user and kind of how, how to navigate that complex space. So you can uh, find the report if you go to theconversation.com um, prisoners need drug and alcohol treatment. Uh, we'll find that for you and you can find a link to the report there. Um, this one was one that popped across my one of my feeds uh, from the Irish Times uh, from an, an ex-government employee. Uh, this guy was the press secretary uh, in the Irish government. Uh, his name's Shane Kenny, and he's uh, produced a documentary focusing on benzodiazepines, a class of drugs, Valium included in that class, Xanax, um, and that have become quite popular. Um, you might have heard... Um, uh, there was a, a death this week of another young rapper. I don't actually know the details of um, the drugs that he took. He was 26 years old and he passed away. Uh, it was uh, said that he's, it was from an overdose. Um, but we know that there is a lot of um, use of benzos as a recreational uh, substance in in these um, in these uh, younger. In, well, I, I just know there's this like sort of. Xanax rap thing that goes on. I don't know. I feel out of touch. I must be getting old, but <laughs> this is yeah, uh, this is a thing that's going on. Uh, and this um, documentary that he's put together is, uh, he says, it's going to be highlighting the uh, um, the medical disaster that is the over over prescription of drugs such as Valium. So I don't know if it's going to be um, quite a. Uh, uh, 
um, a nice down the line documentary or if he's going to be uh, fear mongering. Um, but he, I mean, this might give an indication. He he was comparing now the the prescription of benzodiazepines to people to uh, the uh, prescription of uh, Thorazine, I think it was, to um, well to people in the in the nineteen fifties and sixties. It led to a lot of um, deformities in in babies uh, and and in, in people and as they as they grow older. So I don't know if that's completely fair, but I think he's focusing on the um, cognitive effects that um, benzodiazepine addiction can have uh, on people, which can be quite significant. They can be quite addictive and people can... Um, it's particularly bad on memory from what I understand. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep our eye on that one. Could be a good one, could be rubbish. There's one that turned up a uh, couple of weeks back. I kind of haven't done the news for a little bit. It was in the New Zealand Herald... Um, out of New Zealand, and it was a high court judge has um, basically demanded that the Crown turn up f- with evidence during sentencing that high sentences actually reduce crime. Um, and so it's, it's actually kind of interesting, a judge just going, oh, right, well, you guys, like, keep coming here and, you know, demanding high sentences for drug traffickers or, you know, whatever, assuming that it has some effect in reducing crime. So presumably you can show up and show me that to help inform my sentencing. <laughs> and um, the, the, the Crown turned up with nothing at all. And um, I think the defence lawyers turned up with pages and pages of documentation showing that um, there wasn't actually an effect in, in reducing offending. So, you know, it was kind of an interesting one. It's like fed into a discussion that is happening in New Zealand as it's happening around the world about what is the point of um, some of our laws, especially around drug use, uh, on lower lower level offending. But interestingly, in this case, also for like what we call like maybe more severe offending, higher level drug trafficking, possibly in conjunction with organised crime. You know, like let's actually have evidence-informed uh, judicial systems. So a <laughs> bit of a uh, interesting one from the judge there. Um, now, this one, I want to um, talk a little bit uh, with you about this one, Ash, because uh, it's something I, I don't know if you've ever ever heard of this, um, and, and do feel free to uh, chime in if you know anything about this reader as well. Uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, CHS. Uh, so it's something that um, people might have heard before, especially if you're a, a, a regular cannabis user or have used a lot at certain points, and um, it's uh, got a number of um, uh, symptoms that are associated with it, including um, sort of uh, inability to regulate temperature properly, um, uh, some like sort of painful sensory um, type things going on, uh, things like that. Um, But there is some new research... Uh, and I say that with a question mark above the research. I found out about it through a blog, um, but the guy that's writing it, it seems to be writing uh, from a place of knowledge, uh, suggesting that um, it's not caused by cannabis, but actually caused by a chemical called azadirictin, as a directin or neem, um, neem oil uh, from the neem plant. And uh, apparently it's used a lot uh, on uh, on lots of plants uh, to uh, as a pesticide or whatever. Uh, so it's used a lot in cannabis production to just get rid of basic pests. Um, but because cannabis is good, and here's a nice word, I'm going to throw in new words at you today, uh, photoremediator. Uh, which means that it's, it's good. Cannabis is a good photoremediator, which means that it's really good at picking up um, all sorts of things from contaminated soil, which is great for the soil, cleans out the soil, um, but it means that the plant has that material in there. And if you're then going and consuming that plant, then you've got that that um, material 
uh, in you as well. So I, I just thought that this was interesting because it maybe does um, uh, point to uh, that in these growth conditions and, and the way that people grow, there might be some things going on that are causing symptoms that people are associating with cannabis that might actually be from, a again, a poor um, production distribution system. So, yeah, while I'm not familiar with that particular syndrome, this would not be a surprise to a lot of regular cannabis consumers. So there's been certain things that I've seen turn up in people um, where, like, some cannabis seems to cause almost like hay fever symptoms um and and certain things like that and um you know like a lot of people around me we've had this assumption for years and it's um it it can also be a factor of the way that prohibition drives the growth cycle so my understanding i've never grown hydroponic weed but i have some understanding of the process and um, my understanding is that the last two weeks of the growth cycle you're meant to flush everything out and just sit it in water so it just soaks up water through the roots it's like kind of like a cleansing thing for the plant almost Mm. and there's also considerations of the kind of chemicals that people use that people that um are maybe more engaged with the growing process than just generating a product for organized crime might consider. And so you get people that are just trying to like pump out cannabis as quickly as possible. So, you know, the other thing that happens there is it can get bagged up dry, uh, bagged up wet and yeah. produce mold in the bag, which yep. could have its own possible health effects. So, you know, these are, these are kind of the things of prohibition. Like surely in a regulated environment, you wouldn't be allowed to use a chemical to produces a negative health effect and, like and if you did it'd be all over the news just like when a bag of lettuce at coles ends up with a spider in it and the whole whole of australia knows about it um but you don't you don't know when a bag of weed ends up with a bunch of mold in it and it can cause all sorts of things um just some of the symptoms for as a directin i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right it could be a chitin uh at the end there but um the symptoms of the toxicity from that chemical are intense nausea cyclic vomiting abdominal pain diarrhea muscle tension fatigue and dehydration um so you can imagine those in an intense way or a mild way with where you've just got a mild sort of poisoning from it and that you know i, I wonder well, probably, like, a factor there is that, like, you're also going to be high. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's potentially going to exacerbate exacerbate the feelings that you're already going through and also create an environment where it might be even more psychologically distressing to feel like that. So yep. yeah. it's kind of like combining something that makes you high with something that makes you sick. And um, I imagine it wouldn't be very pleasant. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah, what have we got here? Um <clears throat> Oh, yeah, so this one, this is this, yes, New South Wales Police. Don't we just love New South Wales Police? <laughs> so it turns out that they've been cooking the books on their uh, drug statistics in New South Cookers. Wales. <laughs> now, I, I don't think it was actually the police. I think it was a mistake of the um, Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research. Is this, is this all Oscar. alleged or true now? No, no, this no, is true. true. This okay. is, <laughs> no, no, they've admitted that they've made a mistake in the accounting. So... Um, Cocaine and ecstasy, ecstasy possession reports to police were inflated by more than 30%, while last year 13,350 recorded drug use slash possession incidents never happened. Um, so there's a write-up in the Sydney Morning Herald um, about this this morning. and um, How many? 13,000? Yeah, so I think, like, if I understood correctly... There'd been an assumption made at this statistics organisation that police weren't recording a certain kind of um, right. incident. So I think just like a detection of a possession 
um, charge or something. So, it's you know, counted, like sniffer yeah. dogs finding a drug. Something like that. They made an assumption about how New South Wales police was recording statistics that led to this massive inflation of the crime statistics data. And this started in 2010. So for the last eight years, there's been an inflation of um, crime statistics data. And there's a difference of an opinion about um, whether this is actually a significant thing or not. I think that if our drug policies were in any way evidence-informed, then it would probably matter more. <laughs> but where it might matter is where police uh, are making requests for certain resources. If there's an inflation of data in that area and then they ask for certain resources, they can sort of be over-policing a problem that doesn't actually exist. Mm. So, you know, it's um, it's a bunch of nonsense. Um, <laughs> David Shoebridge uh, was quoted in one of the articles I read. Uh, he's a member of the Legislative Council for the Greens in New South Wales uh, and helps run the sniff-off program there. Um, yeah, he was quoted there just, you know, basically, I, I mean... The way that I read that was almost like an eye roll. Like, yeah, of course. You mm. know, th this is the kind of stuff that um, he's raised in Parliament trying to get accurate statistics mm. about the Sniffer Dog program and, and what's happening there. And that's been challenging as an elected member who has the right to, like, request information in a formal kind of setting. Um, e even that's been, like, a little bit difficult. So, you know, I'm not too surprised to hear it. I, I think that it might take another, another few days to tease apart exactly what it does mean it does seem to be pretty typical of the uh of of prohibition the war on drugs uh but if you don't like that loaded term i know some people get upset by calling it a war on drugs because like where's the people that are getting killed you point them out but anyway uh the prohibition uh it marches on to the beat of its own drum regardless of what's going on around it the whole band has changed the band's left the band's gone to a, another park they're in a different bandstand now they're com it's completely they're just sitting there in dribbling on a drum at this stage uh and over in the uk um there's there's great proof of this um the headline in the in, in the independent is spice should be upgraded to class a drug say police and crime commissioners because they're so concerned about the effect that the uh these synthetic substances are having uh, largely now on homeless and prison populations mm. because what happened was these substances or the first sort of round of them were legal uh 10 years ago and we watched prohibition in action we watched what happened when a new drug comes along um didn't people didn't know a lot about it there were some bad stories obviously there were some good stories too because people kept buying it uh and um because government's reaction is to prohibit without question uh there there is no mechanism um aside from prohibition so it was always going to be prohibition no matter what and prohibition caused all the problems that it uh it, it has caused throughout every other um drug and uh what what happened with these because of the way that this market was working these are novel substances these are substances we've never seen before created by chemists uh in labs fairly easily now because the technology is available because the knowledge is available uh, and people can sort of infer whether or not something might be psychoactive. It's not necessarily so. They do have to make these things and test them. And this process just marched on and kept churning out new chemical after new chemical, putting them straight onto the marketplace. And uh, and, and then government a few months later, or it had come to the attention of the media and then the government would respond and ban it. And now um, 
uh, what what happened was uh, in in the UK, much like in Australia, they introduced a blanket ban on anything psychoactive. Uh, and and guess what? Oh, they said, oh, well, you know, this is going to get rid of the problem. And guess what? It didn't. What it did uh, was led to people who are most marginalised ending up with um, with these drugs. People that are you know really sort of at risk communities, I suppose. People unable to access perhaps drugs that uh, would be better for them. And that's a controversial thing, apparently. Even though not all drugs are the same, and some are worse than others, um, and uh, has caused all sorts of problems. You'll read stories if you want to look it up. Look up the UK. Look up the word spice or synthetic cannabis or one of these silly buzzwords that flows around um, and find out about it. But yeah, the, the response now is they want to upgrade it. So that means it's going to attract heavier penalties. It's going to attract probably longer jail sentences for um, the distribution or possession uh, or, or manufacture, which in this case is getting a bunch of Damiana and spraying chemicals you bought mm. for 20 bucks from India or China uh, onto it. And it's just, like, what, what does this solve other than to scapegoat? What does it solve? It's a scapegoat. Anyway, pathetic. <laughs> um, how are we going for time? Uh, one more. One more. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I'll jump off that into an uh, article in The Conversation also, which covers monkey dust, crocodile, and ah, niope, yes. and all of the stuff, <laughs> and kind of gets into it a little bit. Some maybe got a little bit more nuance than... Um, kind of the stuff that you're talking about. It's just more of an analysis of trends. And so one of the interesting things to consider here is that um, a lot of these drugs are uh, synthetic cathinones is the, the kind of class of drug that they are. And there's an interesting graph in the article that shows the um, trend lines of ecstasy use tracked against cathinones. And so when they really started to become popular was around 2008, they started spiking up, and over 2009, 2010, there's a massive spike, and this coincides with a massive dip in the availability of ecstasy. Mm. Now, for people who are familiar with drug trends, international drug trends, this was around the time there was a global shortage in saffron oil, which is one of the precursors to making MDMA. So it was part of the, I guess, international drug control thing that they had some success in. um, I think it was in Southeast Asia somewhere. There was a big operation. and Yeah. So so the global availability of that declined. But it's not like people stop taking drugs. Substitution is the most common thing for most drug users, and most drug users are polydrug users. They use more than one drug, so they just switch to something that's maybe not their, not their first choice, but it's like, well, if you can't afford whiskey and you can drink beer, well, it's still nice down at the pub to have a drink and a chat can't with your friends. Beer, then. So, you know, similar to that. And so you saw this spike in cathinones, and then they fell back down as um, ecstasy became available. And so... Anyway, um, probably better roll on with the show, but uh, it's an interesting article to just look at the history of these different drug trends and um, crocodile in Russia. It's a kind Which of is, it's a, a badly manufactured opiate, really, yeah. is essentially what it is. Um, and that has different trends, and it kind of talks into the reasons why, why those kind of changing dynamics appear. And you can find... Um, all the stories that we talk about on the social media, on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, easiest way to do that and find out all of the, our channels is to go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links to the Psychedelia program page, uh, where from there you can find our social media link, you can find our much um, uh, our website that is in much need of updating uh, <laughs> over the next few months and will be, and um, get in touch with us. Please do. Uh, this is Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Burn, burn, let the walls burn. We shout it, we scream it, but she never learned. Burn, burn, let the walls burn.
United Struggle Project presents The Change, revolutionary hip-hop theatre. Join us for an interactive performance taking audience on an epic journey through the Collingwood Estate underground car park, transformed into many worlds for you to explore. 6.30pm, Thursday the 13th and Friday the 14th of September and 3pm Saturday, 15th of September. Tickets on the Fringe Festival website are on the door. Free for Collingwood Housing Estate residents, no one turned away. Hey, all you mob, be a part of the change. This ain't a pill to will, as into apathy. Meet us on the front line and off to the tent embassy. Burn! Hi, this is Hugo the Poet, and you're listening to 3CR. And by doing that, you're supporting community radio, an incredibly important institution in our times. Uh, it is 3CR. Thanks for that, Hugo. Um, and next, you're going to be hearing a panel that uh, was recorded live at Entheogenesis Australis conference in December last year. Uh, the conference uh, was focused... It was a bunch of people from, uh, from the festival scene across Australia and uh, focused on... Um, Making making festivals safe for the uh, for the patrons uh, involved, and I'm just bringing up all of uh, all of the names of everyone that was there. Uh, there was uh, it was uh, moderated by Martin Williams from Prism uh, Prism Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. Uh, panelists included Tim Harvey from Rainbow Serpent Festival, Paula Bad from Earth Frequency Festival, Michael Balderstone from Mardi Gras and from the Nimbin Hemp Embassy, Shane Russell from Dragon Dreaming Festival, and Steph Genetti's from Dancewise. Uh, so this is a discussion uh, with a bunch of people from festivals about making festivals safe. It's only a small part of the uh, full talk as well. If you want the full talk, uh, you can find that at the EGA YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash EntheoTV. That's uh, EntheoGenesis Australis. The thing I've been noticing um, as these events have been um, moving in the mainstream and the age demographics is falling is that the, um, the, the level of risk um, involved and the um, risky behaviour from patrons is increasing. Um, th- they don't have experience with substances and they're taking substances in enormous amounts and they don't know how to deal with the outcomes of this. And so the, um, the necessity for us as organisers to actually um, um, look at ways to care for these people is increasing as a result of that. Um. Yeah, I think the aspect of substance use is definitely something that we're going to be covering, obviously, in the context of, yeah. of this event, um, and a very good point to make, and, and how it relates to risk and risky behaviour, and then how we create safe spaces on both sides of the fence to protect people from others as well as themselves, and also to protect others from them. So there, there are several levels that we can explore that uh, as time goes on. Uh, it seems to me that um, the general feeling is that we're in a less good situation now than we might have been five or ten years ago. Is that a bit of a consensus? Would anybody say we're in a better better place in terms of, yep? It's a better in the sense that more people are thinking about the potential that you, you can grow within yeah. such spaces. Are we in a better place because there is more responsibility accepted by organisers to... Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. To to be honest, I I do think we're in a better place. I I think um, the level of responsibility I'm seeing from organisers these days is um, increased dramatically on what it was um, when I first started operating 10 years ago. And um, um, this... um, It it has to be a good thing. Um, The other thing, too, is that... um, 
you know, culturally, um, you know, we got into um, these sort of events because we wanted to share our culture with people. And as they are moving into the mainstream, it is de definitely um, um, resulting in problems. But you've also got the benefit that you actually are getting the opportunity to share the culture that you wanted to share with more people, which is which is an excellent thing. Yep, yep, yep. Um, we're in a, well, uh, would you say that there are major differences between um, drug festivals and, or well, I guess, let's try again, forms <laughs> of electronic dance music festivals, which Thank are you. commonly associated with <laughs> drug use, um, and more traditional, perhaps, uh, acoustic or rock music festivals, which are le probably less commonly associated with drug use in the public's perception, but in fact are still very much associated with drug use. So do you think there's a perceptional problem there and how could we address that? Or do we need to address it and how do we do that? It's not just music festivals as well. Like it's, Absolutely. It's like Spring Racing Carnival, AFL Grand Final. Like anywhere where groups of people congregate, there's going to be a certain number of people that take Well, drugs. I think that brings us to the, the drugs of choice of certain, certain cohorts of, of festival or event attendees. So I'd say there's a very different um, drug of choice at the, at the race, Spring Carnival races, for example, apart from alcohol. Um, compared with, <laughs> compared with, say, Rainbow or any of the festivals we're talking about along along the table here, um, but also I suspect there might have been a, quite a shift in the the, the drug use patterns um, in events from original small bushdoofs, which are probably more purely psychedelic festivals, to um, you know to, to to much larger festivals where you do have a much broader range of people and their backgrounds coming on board age groups uh, experiential backgrounds and so on and so where do we um how do we do we have to demarcate among them how do we do that do we because one of my major concerns um that you may not share is that the word drug is a shocking a shocking term because it just it carries so much baggage and it, it, it's such a broad catch-all term so how would you how do you feel about this sort of perception of drugs as a concept and, and do we need to try and pick that out and try and deconvolute it? So, so uh, the, biggest drama, the biggest drama for Mardi Gras has always been alcohol. <coughs> so we really tried to, and we've got the pub in the middle of town. If you haven't been to Nimbin, it's a one-street village and the pub's in the middle of town. One pub, nine cops, and the whole one street's live to the cop shop. So, so, and they're still overrun by people selling weed and buying weed, wanting to smoke weed. But, uh, but, but Mardi Gras alcohol, we've had to, we've got a no glass policy, and the cops came down quite hard on it. And the cops now focus on tipping alcohol out in the street because there's no alcohol, no alcohol zone. We went through a, a kind of Saturday night dance party thing that happened also which was meant as a safe place for people because they closed down our music at midnight. Where does everyone go? They needed somewhere to go. That was a drama. But then it brought in all, all the other, you know, non-cannabis drugs, which the police see differently and blah, blah. And we had a few dramas because it was all unregulated. So, so I'm sure it's true that now we've got so many rules, it's good. But we, the biggest danger is getting busted, as far as I'm concerned. So our effort's been to try to keep the police at bay. So we formed our, our, our own polite service, so we didn't need the cops. That was important. And we've got a jungle patrol we created, so we didn't need the cops. And we've kind of, you know, mostly won. So we do our own security and they stay back now. Yeah. And that's critical because the big drama is people, you know, 
getting busted. There'll be an odd overdose of people who don't listen to the cookie advice, so we've got safe spaces for them. But otherwise, you know, the cops are the drama. And I'm all for we change to the polite service and uh, they hardly see you coming. The, 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 co- the, the, the comment that you made earlier about um, uh, changing or demarcation between the, the word, word drugs um, is an interesting one because... Um, the general public don't associate alcohol as a drug, mm. but um, unfortunately it is. Uh, essentially, Australians in general culturally um, associate um, going out and having a good time with taking some sort of substance, would be alcohol or something else. So, yes, um, changing the perception of this is this type of substance and this is this, that type of substance is fairly important, I think. I think, well, sorry, putting the pressure back on them as well. Like One of my things this year that I just keep on... Basically, every rainbow comes along and I have this rotating sort of like dialogue in my head, which is how do I defend, how do I defend, how do I defend? And one of the things I've come up with this year is, like, you've created this situation, oh, legislators and and law enforcement. Like, you know, back when I started at Rainbow Serpent Festival, we weren't dealing with any of this shit that we're dealing with today. And the, the whole reason that we're dealing with it today is because of failed policy over, like, 20 to 30 years... And then they expect us to solve it within a five-day period that we have these people in our, in our gates. And it's like, you know, get real. Have a, have a little bit of uh, common sense here. You've created this incredible problem. You've made people invent more weird and wacky and inventive, like, chemical substances to try and, and you know, get around laws. And then you turn around and put the pressure on us to try and solve a situation within a five-day period. It's, it's just insanity at the at base. You know? I actually had an interesting um, statement from the police a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago um, because we just actually just finished Dragon Dreaming a couple of weeks ago. Um, and they actually complained to us that uh, there was a higher level of alcohol intoxication at the event this year than they witnessed in the past and there were some associated problems as a result of it. Um, and my comment to them was is that you, know, you guys have been... Um, Telling us to push the message that yeah. you know, we don't want illicit substances at our event, and the message is getting through, and this is the result. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, deciding um, this substance or this substance or this substance is um, different at different levels is incorrect. Mm. It, all, all substances should be considered the same as far as um, you know um, being consumed in a public place because they all have problems. Um. And if we're, if we're going to be perceiving issues related to drugs, um, we, I would recommend we always go back to set, setting and substance. You know, it's not helpful uh, to demonise, uh, to point out and demonise certain substances over others because uh, another lens would be to say that certain people shouldn't have drugs because maybe they're predisposed to being weak. So you, you want to uh, make sure that the, the mainstream narrative about this issue is a bit more nuanced and you're considering always set, setting and substance. And setting uh, can be as small as the individual chill space that someone is being supported in to the entire society that is subject to our drug policies. So you're saying that education is quite an important part of the process. So do you think maybe education of politicians, lawmakers and law enforcers might be useful as well? It would, but I I think that the majority do know what's right. It's just they're a little bit of a slave to the ballot a lot of the time. One of the things we're doing this year is we're... um we're working to de- develop a policy. Uh, it's, just, it's just crazy, but you know you have to do these things when you have a mound of documentation like that. So we're developing a policy, and we're actually going to go and we're going to start grassroots education of our council um, of locals. We're going to create a, a you know direct community consultation communication, 
And hopefully with the aid of people like Caldecott and Monica Barrett and experts who have just got this fantastic evidence of what's working overseas, we're going to start at grassroots and we're going to change council's mind. We're going to get council on board. They're going to, we're going to get them to understand how important it is to support our view, hopefully. And, you know, we're just going to, we're going to take it with a step at a time from there. So. Great. The point talking, that the talk, just talking alcohol, Splendour in the Grass is main sponsors are all alcohol companies now. Yeah. And I see that heaps at all these music festivals. It's legal, legal, it's the legal drug. Cool. The point that I really push when I'm communicating with our stakeholders, and that could be police, media, um, local community, um, council, is really just to separate the idea of the festival with the idea of behaviour at the festival because... You know, there, there is this um, perception or dialogue that festivals are, you know, somehow promoting or inciting this kind of behaviour, but uh, the people creating the spaces are usually focused on some really simple themes and then they just manage the behaviour that comes through. And so I look at it as basically like it's, um, it's a little snapshot, it's a tip of an iceberg of um, this really broad social problem. And sure, different types of festivals will attract different types of people and different behaviours and different substance tendencies, but there isn't this clean separation and there isn't, um, uh, you know, with festival organisers really advocating uh, the use of this, we're actually just dealing with a problem in the same way so everything that I really you know put forward is uh, you know don't tar us, tar us with the same brush we're actually here to work together we have the same goals mm. we need to break down that perception and uh, it's led to some really uh, you know some good information sharing uh, interestingly I think um, the last two years when we look at the road stats in terms of uh, drug detections I do get actually a breakdown of um, uh, which ones were locals and it's usually about a third of uh, the road um, drug detections have been locals and it's been, um, you know, cannabis and, and methamphetamine and, um, you know, and we're in a country area and, um, you know, little things like that. And we've been able to get that sort of information actually put in the newspaper write-ups as well. So we're really pushing for, um, there's a lot of grey, er- you know, grey areas and blurred lines. Let's not, you know, but, but, but that's like a, um, it, it's a media uh, you know, it's a convenient media story. Is these festivals promoting this thing? But yeah, it's something we have to constantly battle against, and um, some people are receptive to that. Excellent. I I did want, and that's a fantastic point that uh, brings me to this idea of geographic, um, I guess, location of festivals. Um, do you feel that there are variations, geographic variations, in sort of festival cultures, and then uh, official responses, and then peer or or um, uh, human, sorry, well, peer responses, so community responses. In other words, would a <laughs> would a southeast Queensland uh, <laughs> festival? In my mind, I've got this unstructured, unwritten uh, cultural anthropology of festivals and Again. substances and the kind of um, you know behaviours uh, that, that it um, you know, and that can be any, anything from the music to you know whether it's an alcohol-sponsored festival or whether it's completely underground. You know the intention of the people who've um, put it on what their uh, creative background is. And it does manifest as, as different behaviours. Uh, and if you go to um, festivals in different parts of the world, um, you're going to see just... It's, it's like a different co- uh, cultural storyline and it's, in, it's an interaction of, um, you know, humans, um, external agents, uh, community and, you know, a broad cultural background. So every single time it's different. There's no set rule... Uh, of, you know, a festival is going to be like this or that. And there's so many variables that you can only ever, I guess, I guess observe. But sure, like a festival where everybody, uh, you know, smokes marijuana and there's no alcohol will be massively different to something where everybody's drinking Jim Bean and, you know, listening to country music. Or um, our, our previous site, actually, um, it, was, uh, it was called... Um, 
uh, Cruiser Park and it had its own festival called Mud Bulls and Music <laughs> and that was um, country music, bull riding, four-wheel driving and, uh, you know, all the alcohol sponsors and used to hear stories about the behaviour there and, um, and you know, we, we were the festival that apparently had all these risky substances but it was just, uh, it was like a security non-event. It was just people being peaceful and enjoying, you know, art, music and each other and, yeah, so all, all these things are definitely uh, influences. Right. Risky substances versus risky behaviours. Again, the twain shall meet. Uh, any other further comments on that? I'd like to move very soon on to safe spaces since uh, that's, that's an important part of what we were discussing. So um, what, do, what does a safe space mean to you, obviously within the context of the festival theme that we're discussing at the moment? Where does it, what is a safe space and where does it, where does it fit? Sass, I know you've got well, actually, plenty to I was, talk about. I was hoping to just tag on uh, <laughs> Well, you're welcome to, to tag on. Question, yeah. Oh, um, sorry. Talking about emergency services. Because I, I get to be a, a, a fly on the wall or, or uh, someone sitting at the table at quite a few different uh, emergency management or planning meetings. Um, and I do get to see that certain considerations where you have people like agencies like law enforcement um, wanting to know the proximity to the nearest hospital and what facilities and what potential um, public health implications uh, a local community could feel. Because Australia is an incredible country where you can go out um, and find yourself in such remote and exquisite places. Uh, But we have a lot of rural communities that are actually starved for essential services on any uh, given day of the year. So sometimes festivals come into a space and they're actually um, setting up a a hospital, like um, set up, uh, and they're actually enhancing the health services available for a short period of time. But sometimes if there was an incident or it was perceived that there was a high risk of a particular incident happening uh, in this remote setting, people would have to come up with the logistics of how, where would the helicopter land and those kind of things. So um, those factors do have an impact. Mm. Festivals might seem like, oh, it's two hours that way, it's two hours that way, but what kind of services are in that direction compared to that one can have an impact on whether someone's getting a permit. Yeah, right, Okay. But so, if you're going to break a leg in Beaufort, then probably the January long weekend is a good time to do it. Is no. it the idea? <laughs> <laughs> Go on, ask stats then. <laughs> um, yeah, so good point. So, uh, sorry, Shane. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I was actually just going to continue about what, what is a safe space. Yeah, please. Um, <coughs> safe space is not necessarily the word that I'd like to use for it, um, but essentially. Um, the concept for me um, it's become very poignant to me in the last couple of years is um, it, um, you want all of um, the people that are attending to your event to feel comfortable in whatever situation that they're in, um, you know, whether they've hurt themselves, whether they've been assaulted, whether they're intoxicated, whatever, um, to present um, to staff and the services that we've got inv- available. That's essentially what safe space is. It's, it's not so much a space, it's more an education, it's more a um, g- getting um, every patron um, confident enough to present to the services that you have available and also knowing where they are. That's, that's what a safe space yep. is to me. I think that's a beautiful point because I guess what you're, what you're really... Um, saying is that the whole space should be a safe space. Uh, absolutely. And that, and that in some yep. ways we focus maybe on creating a safe subspace, yep. but that brings us to, I know Steph's, Steph's really good point that she made during the week, was that if you have a safe space, then does that mean that all other spaces are unsafe? 
We, we call them chill-out zones. Oh, and no, we'd it's, have a, a, have it's a discrete space. Several yeah. throughout the sort of protest site. Yeah. And always try to have someone with medical knowledge there and people who know... Often there's overdoses of cookies or people mixing weed with alcohol or occasionally there's a bit of violence, but very rarely. We, we have no trouble with it. But it's really important to have those zones where people can just go and be quiet. There's music everywhere, there's noise everywhere, whatever. People just need that chill-out space. Mostly that's what they need. So it's really important to have that. And again, we try to try to make sure we can cover all those bases so police <clears throat> don't have to get involved. Right. So the, the next question, does anybody want to further explore that further, please? Because I think there's I, lots of I just to want to say that like, I, I find the concept of having a safe space at a festival, like, I, I agree, this, the whole festival should be the safe yeah. space. And then my, my other concern is it kind of sets you up for failure because it's an unattainable kind of goal to have a safe space. You can create as safe a space as you like and someone can come in and still completely destroy that just through their own actions. And this is the, this is the issue I think we have with Rainbow is that 95, 90, 99 point something percent of people are doing the right thing. And I don't mean they're not taking drugs. I mean they're taking drugs and they're being educated. They're aware of the services that we have if they get into trouble. They, they sleep, they eat. And then you have a point zero, maybe 1.07% of people who are in some way uh, you know, self-destructive, um, not going to eat, not going to sleep, going to go hard, you know, party or die kind of attitude no communication, um, no amount of services are going to protect you from the effects that that person can have on your business and on your community. Um, and so I find that in my head, like, there's this, there's, like, let's create a safe space, but then let's not kid ourselves. You know, we're, it, we can do everything that we can and we're still subjecting ourselves to that risk. So then the next question is, well, what are the, thing, the other things that we can do um, outside of that, which is basically, you know, education of the stakeholders and... and creating support structures within our stakeholder community so they have access to the same information that we have and that's just my view on it anyway. Yeah, For us, um, we're really trying to take both a proactive and reactive approach. So what people might think of a safe space, a place to go is more more reactive. It's when there's already a problem and uh, part, of the, part of the solution for me as well is actually uh, proactive. So um, we have a team who actually walk around dance floors with uh, harm minimization, like top 10 points for surviving the festival well. And that could be things about contraindication or staying hydrated, looking after your mates, just really simple stuff, especially focusing on the the younger part of the audience. Um, A whole department called Cooling and Caring, which I guess is like a a really friendly front line. You know, it's um, misting water and actually it's just sets of eyes everywhere. So really trying to actually... Um, not just wait for a problem uh, to present. And so that really fits in with what was said before about trying to make the festival, the whole festival, more safe because what we're actually doing is um, managing percentage risk factors. And they're all small percentage risk factors, but multiplied by five, ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people. And then you start seeing statistics. So, um, yeah, that's, um, yeah, safe spaces from both angles. Yep. I think, uh, again, we've touched really nicely on another concept which has come to me is that who are, we, who are we protecting in safe spaces? Who are we protecting from? From Michael's point of view, it was protecting from the police. From, <laughs> you know, from, from Shane's point of view, I think it was protecting people who are maybe having a hard, um, well, having a harder experience. And so I think we've all covered on that as well. So people who are 
who are having more difficult experiences and perhaps need a quieter space. From Michael's point of view, music and music and noise are things to be protected from, as a lot of people at festivals go for the music and the noise. So, you know, there, there are several ways to look at that, of course. So, um, yeah, to, to, to what degree should we be sort of trying to define what safe spaces are protecting us from and then how do we go, how do we go from there? I mean, yes, a chill space is a fantastic concept that we all, I'm sure we all embrace and maybe that could be considered an even safer space than the, the broader safe space of the, of the facility in general. Does that make sense? The other thing we have is, is jungle patrol which again was to try to keep police or authorities at bay. So they're walking around all the time to, to, because people come to Nimbin and they don't know the place, directions, people get too stoned, whatever. Mental illness is a big attraction. We seem to bring them like a magnet. So, so that's an end, and we get volunteers to do that over yeah. Mardi Gras. So this is the ranger concept, I guess. Uh, yeah, that, that yeah. We constantly all walking around the with. water bottle like you're talking yep. about, yep. just... Trying to help people. And the rovers in Dancewise yeah. staff. Yeah, so, and again, yeah. to do, we've got, they do traffic control as well. So, again, it's just to try to do, try to do everything ourselves rather than bring in outside bodies. Also, because it's been a, we don't have the finances, and you don't get much funding for protesting against government laws, and you don't get much support from the government either, really. <laughs> Um, so who should be creating these safe spaces? Because I know in, in actuality there's a range of responsibilities taken by different organisations. So, of course, festival organisers on the one hand. I mean, a, a, a chill space is, is a concept that's, that's come about, I guess, well, it's come about in the indoor, the club scene, as much as it did in the, in the outdoor scene. Um, but, uh, for example, a, a 50 or 100 person Bushdorf is probably not going to have a chill it, it'll have its own chill uh, spaces which are basically people's cars um, <laughs> and so uh, and under pillows and that sort of thing so um, yeah that that comes into play but of course then you have non um, organizer organizations such as such as Dancewise Home Reduction Victoria and then there's a number of others as well so um, is it a matter of sharing responsibility for these or is it a matter of um, each, uh, each organisation making what contribution it can and then um, hoping that the others will, uh, will step in to cover other dimensions of that sort of safety that we've been talking about? Um, um, well, I would advocate uh, that the harm reduction perspective is very horizontal. Um, harm reduction education is not a trickling down effect. Uh, it's a two-way plus conversation. So uh, one of the key values for harm reduction is that you empower people. Uh, so it would be making sure that you don't overtake. So if you are um, setting the intention to create a safe space or a chill space, it has to be authentic and it's going to work best when it's working with the direct community that it's there for. So yeah, mm -hmm. it always mm -hmm. has to be a collaboration. Yeah. Yep. Children is big in safe spaces, uh -huh. and, and children have always been a challenge to me because you want kids to come. I want them to learn about weed early, you know. Don't smoke with tobacco. Anyway, one of the biggest dramas I've found with kids is they get left. So you've got someone to look after kids, and it gets to sunset, and there's still eight kids left. Where are the parents? So children are quite a challenge, and it's really important. You've got spaces for kids and parents who want to look after kids and... It's a big part of, of so, anything we've done. So is that, um, sorry, just touching on that, and I think Tim's going to be able to talk to that in a moment as well, is that um, 
to what degree is community abrogating the responsibility for 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 safe d <laughs> and creating safe spaces you know um if if the festival organizers are expected to provide a child care facility you know how far does the responsibility go and where and where, where do we stop and what you start enabling people then you know if you're yeah. not careful it's, it's, it's very, it's very tricky yeah. that's right yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, well, I think we do need to take that into consideration. Um, but, yeah. um, the point that Steph said about um, um, uh, harm minimisation being horizontal, well, um, safe space is horizontal as well. Because the, the point that I made earlier is um, you need to educate your entire patron base um, to look after each other and need them to be aware um, that services exist, and they're not just taking responsibility for themselves; they're taking responsibility for every single person around them and one of the things that I've actually noticed is that um, as the age demographic has fallen you see a lot more instances of somebody lying on the ground hurt for whatever reason and people looking at them and going oh and wandering past and and that's the behavior that we basically have to try and educate our patrons is not acceptable um basically um patrons um safety is everybody's responsibility uh and that it, it's shocking that you do have to remind people of that sort of thing but it's it's true and that uh last voice that you just heard from was uh Shane, who is one of the directors, I believe, of Dragon Dreaming Festival, uh, that panel was recorded at Entheogenesis Australis last year in December uh, out in Eildon, and you can find the full video, the full talk, at youtube.com forward slash entheotv. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR. I think that um, that last point is kind of interesting. I think that if you conceptualise a music festival as a community then of course there's going to be complex needs and problems that exist in any community. Any community that regularly meets of any size, something will come up. It'll be random the first time it comes up and you'll go, oh, we didn't handle that well. And then you've got to figure out that there's better ways that you can organise to do things. Speaking of organising communities... (laughs) Getting things done and making these places safer, Rita... Um, uh, uh, (laughs) Well, so you've been heading up the uh, organising for the Loop Australia uh, down here in Melbourne. There's an event coming up this Thursday and also some training. So do you maybe want to paint the picture of what all of that looks like and entails? Yeah, sure. I might um, take it back a little bit. So, yeah, there's a team of us here in Melbourne, um, Sydney and Brisbane at the moment, all sort of working together um, to... Uh, get organised an Australian arm of the loop safety testing. So obviously the loop UK, um, everybody's pretty familiar with. Um, Fiona Meesham is the director and co-founder of that. What we're actually doing, um, Fiona's coming out, Fiona's in Australia at the moment and um, is coming to Melbourne next week. And what we're actually doing, we're bringing her out um, to help lay the groundwork to help us as Australian organisers create our own offshoot of the loop. So we will actually operate as our own um, entity, separate from the Loop UK, but based on um, the successful model that they clearly had over the last few years. Um, It'll be run, organised locally, um, and we're sort of going to get a feel for the space and what's going to work here locally, because obviously every jurisdiction's different. We're going to have to negotiate different things in different different areas. Um, So where we're at at the moment... um, is that Fiona is coming out to uh, meet key decision makers, have lots of meetings, get chatting about about what's sort of feasible in the festival space over the next few seasons, I guess. Um, 
and we're working to launch the Australian arm. So that's a really exciting thing that we're kind of here to talk about today is is, is launching the loop safety testing so, Australia. And there's two two main parts to that. That's the event this Thursday, which we'll get onto in a minute. But um, maybe the first thing we can touch on is the, the training. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The training point. Yep. So Fiona's coming out also with um, some of her senior teams. So one of their senior chemists, Jens Thomas, and their lead trainer, Eddie Schooler. Scott, I actually don't know how to say that. I've never said it out loud. Um, <laughs> apologies, Eddie. Um, he's in transit. He, he touches down in Sydney tomorrow. So we'll, we'll send him the, the podcast. Hook. Yeah, yeah, no, don't. Um, so, yeah, this is probably the most exciting part about things. So what we've been sort of working our butts off all year is to um, – sort of create the organisation, get the organisation up and running. Um, and and Eddie, Fiona and Jens will be um, training a team of volunteers here in Melbourne next Saturday um, and in Sydney and Brisbane. So the idea is that, you know, when, when there's a space to, to launch and hit the ground running, we're in a position where we have a service ready that's fully go. ready to go and fully operational and ready to provide, which is really cool and really exciting. Um, are, are applications still open? Applications are absolutely still open. So we, um, it's deadline's getting a bit short. We'll probably keep reviewing applications right up until maybe uh, Thursday, Friday this week for training. Um, we'll be held in Richmond Saturday afternoon. Um, I probably will. I'll just run through in a second. I'll run through what um, the sort of requirements are for volunteering. Uh, but prior to that. Uh, if you are, oh, hang on, no, if you are interested, you can probably the best way to find out a little bit more about it is to jump on um, Unharm's website because Unharm have been sort of helping us get this off the ground. So if you go to www.unharm.org and uh, find their campaigns tab, there's uh, launching the loop safety testing option there. So that runs through the requirements. So we'll train a bunch of uh, people who will be able to, uh, professional chemists who will be able to test on site and have experience with the with the technology that, that the Loop use, um, as well as um, some health and harm reduction workers who will be people who will be able to provide brief interventions um, at festivals if and when there's an opportunity to have that front of house interaction with the general public. And the event this Thursday? The event this Thursday is the launch of the Loop safety testing. Um, it's basically a party to celebrate what we've <laughs> been working so hard lately and to bring everybody together, everybody in the space who's, who's interested, um, and and also do a little bit of fundraising while we're at it um, to, to sort of support the activities that we've been doing. It will be at Noisy Ritual um, Winery on Ligon Street. It's um, uh, f- free to register. Um, we do ask for a donation if and where possible. Um, but if that's not possible, we still want as many people to come along and have a chat and meet the team and ask lots of questions. We'll have some of the technology on site and, uh, yeah, try and bring everybody together and have a few speeches and have a good time. And there'll be a bit of music as well There'll be a on. bit of music. We've got a couple of DJs, um, Dave Cheswig from Shadow Electric fame and, and, and Laser Ferrari will be sort of, it won't be, won't be rock and banging music, it'll probably be a bit of background fun, but... Um, yeah, we'll also have a uh, auction. Uh, some Ooh. really amazing, generous uh, local artists have donated some pieces to have run a bit of a silent auction. So if people are feeling flush and like spending their cash, there's some pretty cool stuff to grab there. So that's uh, six thirty till nine thirty this Thursday evening at it Noisy is. Ritual. Yep. 
uh, and you can uh, you can register at uh, it's on Eventbrite, but probably the easiest way is just to look up the Loop Safety Testing Melbourne launch, or we will go to the Insacadelia social media and we'll um, we'll make sure that that's all up there and that you can uh, find the information about that. Um, we are just about out of time. It's just about on three o'clock. Queering the air are up next uh, in the studios. Uh, please enjoy the rest of your um, afternoon and um, come along. Uh, Thursday evening and find out about what's going on in this area Um, it's exciting, there's always stuff happening Uh, and make sure to follow along on social media as well Um, we'll see you next week, I'm just going to speed this bit along there we go (laughs) Uh, this has been in Psychedelia on your Sunday afternoon, see you later this is in Psychedelia Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.